Good morning again. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, find the book of Genesis, chapter 5. We'll have verses on the screen, and you also have the passage in your bulletin you received when you walked in. Genesis, chapter 5. And before we look at the passage, I want to say just a few things about it before we read it, because I know that passages like Genesis 5 that we're going to read and others are often the places that we struggle as Christians to understand, why does this matter? Why should I care about this list of names? Why should I care that so-and-so beget so-and-so? What does this have to do with us? And I believe that if we slow down, and prayerfully pour over these words, we'll hear some powerful things from the Holy Spirit. Before we read Genesis 5, I want us to consider the words of 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. You'll see it on the screen. They say that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good Work. All scripture, that includes Genesis 5, is here by the inspiration of God, by the breath of God, and it's profitable for us, and it's intended to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us. Let's look at it together. Genesis chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. And Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died after Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of God. I know we look at this and wonder, what is going on here, right? And yet, as we walk through Genesis, if we remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the very creation of the world from the beginning, and we saw that when God created the world, he created all things in perfect peace and perfect harmony. And then we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that this first couple, Adam and Eve, were tempted by the devil, and we saw them eat from the fruit that God had told them not to eat, and all of creation was corrupted by sin. And then how quick did it take for us to see the corruption of sin at work? The very next chapter in Genesis 4, where we saw last week, we saw the ongoing impact of sin as the children of Adam were at war with one another. But in the midst of all of this, there was a promise. Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. And let's look at that. That becomes central to understanding the Bible and even understanding this chapter before us. Genesis 3.15 tells us, God says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here he's speaking to the serpent, to the devil, to Satan, and saying your offspring and the offspring of the woman would be at war. There's not really a much stronger word you could use for that than enmity, at an ongoing conflict. And this means that the offspring of the serpent, which weren't literal children of the serpent, it was those who walked in the path of and followed the way of the devil and the way of sin and the way of rebellion, that they would be at war with the children of the woman, who are those who, as Seth did at the end of chapter 4 last week, were those who called upon the name of the Lord. I mean, consider how Cain and Abel are the perfect picture of this, as wicked Cain, in his sin, hated his righteous brother Abel and killed him in a field And he thought he was doing right by doing so. And and so we see this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that really is the whole thing that the Bible is trying to unpack for us. But in the midst of that, there was a promise, wasn't there? There was a promise that an offspring of Eve was going to come and crush the head of the serpent to bring him to an end. And so Adam and Eve began from that moment looking in faith and expectation for that child. And then we come and we see Genesis 5. And Genesis 5 is really Genesis 3.15 put on fast forward. What we, what we read in just a few minutes covered 1,500 years of time between Adam and Noah. We covered a ton of ground right in those few verses. And in this genealogy, there's a lot of things we're meant to see, but I think one of the first things we're supposed to see is a contrast between what we saw last week 
and what we saw this week. A contrast between, if you go back and look kind of at that genealogy in chapter 4 later, you see that the line of Cain was marked with lots of worldly success, but ultimately were marked by their sinfulness and their rebellion. I mean, you can even consider Lamech, who was the very last of Cain's line talked about. He took two wives, and he boasted in the fact that he murdered someone. He was proud of that. He thought he was just big and bad. And that's what marked the line of Cain. And yet, we see in Genesis 5, we see that this is a line, the line of Seth, the legacy of the offspring of Eve, a faithful remnant who would continue even in the face of of wickedness. I think we're meant to be struck by this contrast, and I think we're meant to be so struck by it because Genesis 5 and Genesis 4, both genealogies have names that are so similar that it's almost meaning for you to contrast. I think most of us, when we went maybe grew up in school or remember growing up in the neighborhood with different people, there were always two kids who might have had the same name but couldn't have been more different from one another in so many ways. And here we see it. Just look over the list. Seth had a son named Enosh. Cain had a son named Enoch. And there's also an Enoch in the line of Seth that we're going to see later this morning. In verse 15 of chapter 5, we see this guy named Mahalalel, who's in verse 15. And doesn't that sound a bit like in chapter 4, they named their kids, if you're looking for baby names, Mahujael and Methushael in chapter 4. And Lamech is both the name of Noah's father and probably the, the peak wickedness of Cain's line that we saw there in chapter 4. Two family lines, two families meant to draw different contrasts for us. One, a line of wickedness. Another, a line of faithfulness to God. And when we come to genealogies like this, besides seeing this contrast, what in the world are we supposed to do with it? How am I supposed to take this in my private Bible reading time and apply it to my life? That's what we're going to consider together this morning. When we look at Genesis 5 or any genealogy, three questions will help us bring This home. And you'll see this in your notes. The first question we need to ask is why is this here? Why is it here? Simply put, why in the world would the author have put this here? Well, at a surface level, he wants to carry us forward in time, doesn't he? He kind of wants to do like the movies do, where they sort of just carry you forward through a large amount of things to get to something else. As I mentioned, this covers over 1,500 years of time. And, of course, God was working and doing stuff in this time period. But Moses, with the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to get us somewhere. He had an intentional direction that he wanted to take us. See, so many people, I think, misunderstand the Bible because they think it's a random collection of stories just sort of thrown together haphazardly. But, no, the Bible... Every book of the Bible, whether it be Genesis or things in the New Testament, whatever it is, are intentionally structured and put together to communicate something to us. They are ordered. There's a reason that this is here in this order. It's not just haphazardly thrown together. Look at the start of Genesis 5 and verse 1 and 2. Look at this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when he created them. Now, that certainly sounds familiar because he's sort of recapping 
Genesis 1 and 2 for us, but it should also ring in your ears to something else. To something else. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 says this. Look at this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Do you see how similar this is to where Genesis 4, Genesis 2, 4 left off? The, the same Hebrew word used here for generations. If you want to impress people with a Hebrew word at lunch today, the word is teledot, T-E-L-E-D-O-T, if you wanted to make that into sort of English uh, into the closest English you could do. And it's a word that means a historical account, an official record. It's a word used throughout Genesis to give us not only official genealogies, but to mark a transition in the book. You'll see it again in in Genesis 6-9 when it transitions to Noah, and 10 and 11 when it moves from Noah's kids to Abraham. In fact, it's used 13 times in the book of Genesis to begin to mark transitions for us as it moves along. It's here to mark a transition, but I think it's here for more than that. Why is it here? To get us from Adam to Noah, but also I think it's here to instill in us hope, to instill in us hope that God is not done with his promise. If you remember at the end of chapter four, things looked hopeless. Cain had killed Abel The child of promise that Eve thought was going to solve all the problems, all of the curse that had come on the world through sin, was murdered in cold blood by his own brother. What's the hope? Where is the hope in this? How could God fulfill his promise? And then chapter 4 finishes with Seth being born and a glimmer of hope that Seth and his family began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it was Seth's line that we see continue in Genesis 5. Even in the midst of wickedness and even in a wicked culture, God would preserve a people for himself. That even in the midst of of evil in all things, God would be faithful to his promise. This genealogy is here to show us that God is faithful. That God keeps his promise. That God isn't done with us. Even if we feel like there's no hope, he needed us to fast forward to see that God was going to keep his promise for generations and generations to come and that he has somewhere for us to go from Adam to Noah. So first thing we have to ask is why is it here? Not just why is it here in order to understand sort of where the book is going and what he's trying to communicate, but also just how is God displaying himself? And he's displaying his faithfulness in Genesis chapter 5. But also we need to ask the second question, who is here? Who is here? So why is it here? Then we ask when we come to a genealogy, who is here? And if you look over the list, you see ten generations. And each of these generations is summarized in a very similar way. Someone lived a long time and fathered someone else. And then the first someone lived a long time after their child was born and they had more children. And then it concludes that they lived a total amount of time and then they died. And the pattern's pretty uniform, isn't it? Basically, throughout the uh, genealogy, it's pretty uniform. But there are a few names that get a little bit of a different treatment. And I think we should stop and consider those because that should grab our attention Something's different about particularly three people on this genealogy. First, consider Adam. Consider Adam. Look at Genesis 5, verses 2 to 4. Look at this. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when, he, when they were created. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Again, Genesis 5 is reviewing Genesis 1, that mankind was made in God's image to reflect him to the world, that mankind was created with gender, and while that's not a popular idea in our day, it's nonetheless true that God gave gender and made it identical with one's biological sex and gave it as a good gift to humanity. But also, we should notice the age of Adam, shouldn't we? We should notice he lived a long long, long time. In fact, everybody on this genealogy lived a very long time, didn't they? And first, I believe that it's best to take these numbers at face value. I know you might go pick up some commentaries at some library somewhere that might say, well, you need to, you need to try to make these numbers symbolic, or some I've seen even go, well, actually, you need to divide them by another number in order to get what their actual age is. It, it's simply doesn't make a lot of sense out of the passage. It takes a lot of work that you have to put into it rather than taking the meaning out of it. And it doesn't seem to make sense out of where Genesis is going. See, if you watch it, over the course of the book of Genesis, these ages start decreasing. Genesis 11, you'll see the ages start to drop off. And in fact, Joseph will die at the end of the book of Genesis at the old but not unheard of age of 110 So these will start to slowly die off, and so it shows us something drastic is happening. Certainly, I think the effects of sin are beginning to work from Adam and are present and are taking their toll to shorten lifespans, but I also think it's going to teach us about the impact of the flood that we're going to see over the next couple weeks, and so I don't want to get there just yet, but it tells us that I believe that Genesis 6 through 9 with the flood account we'll look at, well, will show us that humanity's life was beginning to be shortened after what God was doing in flooding the earth. That how the world was prior prior to the flood allowed for these families to live a long time, not just to live a long time, but to reproduce at an old age. Consider this, Adam had Seth at the age of 130 and kept going. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Think about poor Eve. That's all I have to think about when I think about that. Poor Eve with all of this, right? See God's kindness, though. We can get into all the finer details and try to work this out in a modern world, but think about God's kindness for a second. God said that when Adam ate of the tree, he would die. That Adam had plunged this whole creation into death and decay, but God showed mercy. He could have died on the spot, but God allowed him not just to live, but to live a long time and to have children after him for a long time. He allowed the human race to come through these people. God had mercy on Adam, but it is important to note that Adam did die. God meant what he said, Adam, you're going to die And he did. He lived 930 years, but then he died. And that's something else that should stand out to us. There's a refrain over and over and over again in this passage. All but one noticeable exception died. Adam's sin brought death to all people, and all people sinned after him. 
Friends, generation after generation after him will die, and friends, you will die. It's a reminder to all of us. Have we ever given much thought to this? I really think in the world we live in today, one of the things that COVID-19 and the coronavirus have caused us to think about is how all of us will one day die. All of us are really so frail in the big picture of things. And to be honest, your pastor is kind of a weird guy in that one of the things I like to do is I love to tour and walk through some of these historic cemeteries where you'll see these, these sort of these monuments to people who died 300, 400, sometimes longer years ago. And something has always stood out with this. When, when I walk through and I see these, most of these people have died and been forgotten. And all that remains is a headstone there and maybe any possible family who may still be alive to come visit them. But even some people don't have that. They died, and the world went on without them. And to some, this is like, Pastor, this is real heavy and morbid. But you need to hear this. Genesis 5 is a reminder the universe does not revolve around you. It's going to keep on going long after you're gone, long after your children's children's children. I mean, it kept on going for a long time after Adam and Seth and all of these people. Honestly, how many of us have ever given thought to this? How many of us even think about this? Think about your own life. If you have a mother or even a grandmother who has passed away, how often do we go beyond about two generations to the cemetery to visit family and to remember them? Very few of us, right, go beyond our mother or our grandmother. Maybe a few, but ultimately, friends, most of us are going to be forgotten. And that might sound really morbid and dark to some of you, but this is life, and you need to think about this when you think about how you live today. Some people just live and live and live and long to be remembered. But friends, more importantly is not that you're remembered in this life, but that one day you're going to die and you're going to be forgotten here and you're going to meet your maker. Your body's going to go in the ground and your soul will go to be with God and you'll face him. And you'll have to give an account for your life. And how will you fare on that day? Genesis 5 is a call to self-assessment. What are you living for? Things that are going to matter after you're gone or things that are going to fade away? Friends, you can't pack everything in your hearse and take it with you. It's not coming with you. Adam is a reminder to us that every one of us is going to die. But there's a name on the list that's an exception, isn't there? Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enoch. With 365 years, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Notice that way that they speak about Enoch. He walked with God. He knew God. And he knew God in such a profound way that it says he was worth being remembered for it. You could have known a bunch of stuff about Enoch, and he says the most important thing to remember about him is that he knew God. And Enoch got to be the one exception in our passage to the rule about death. He walked with God, then one day the the scripture says God took him. And we aren't told in Genesis exactly what that means. We can make some inferences, but 
Enoch's actually talked about more in the New Testament than he is in the Old. Let me give you two verses to write down and to think about. First, Enoch is mentioned in the book of Jude in verse 14. Jude only has one chapter, so Jude 14. Look what it says. It was also about these, Jude's talking about the wicked false teachers of his day. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones. It tells us that Enoch was a prophet, that he brought a message of judgment, and Jude brings us in on this, and he shows us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we're to understand not only this genealogy naturally, because Enoch was the seventh from Adam, but it also gives us a little bit of what his life was like. He probably wasn't a popular guy. <laughs> he probably wasn't the most popular guy in the world. But even beyond that, consider Hebrews 11.5. Hebrews 11.5. This speaks of Enoch, and it says this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. See, Hebrews interprets this for us and helps us see that Enoch was taken from earth so that he did not die. He was taken, much like later in the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha would be taken up to heaven in a very dramatic scene. He walked with God right into the presence of God. And while we may not be taken like Enoch... Will we walk with God like he did? We might have to endure so much, and we don't know a ton about Enoch's personal life, but we do know how he's remembered. Friends, he wasn't remembered for how much money he made. He wasn't remembered for ever being on TV. He wasn't even remembered for what sort of good job he did at work. But he was remembered for who he fathered, and that he walked with his heavenly father. Friends, may we long to be known for those things. May we long to be known as people who walk with God. And finally, the third person we need to notice on this list is Noah. Notice Noah, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name, just so you know, means rest, comfort, or relief. And Lamech looked to Noah to be the one who would reverse the curse of the sin on the ground. He said, look, I'm hoping that he's going to be the one who will fulfill what Genesis 3 promises and reverse the curse. And while Noah has some significant role to play in history... And again, we'll start that next week looking at the flood a little bit. He was not the one who would bring the relief that these people were looking for and longing for. But as we look at Genesis 5, we ask why it's here. It's to bridge the way from Adam to Noah and to show us God's faithfulness to his promises. We see who is here, Adam and Enoch and Noah. And finally, we need to ask, where is it going? Where is it going? As I said, the promise of Genesis 3.15 runs deep through this chapter. Could you imagine having heard this promise and the hope and expectation each of these parents would have as they gave birth, hoping that their child would be the one 
who would fulfill all these things. They likely had heard about this promise from Adam, who, think about this, because of how long Adam lived, Adam lived long enough to speak and meet Methuselah and possibly even Lamech. So all of these generations would go and visit Grandpa Adam, and he could tell them these things. And they would hope and long that this could be their child. All biblical genealogies are these tremors of hope. For the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God will come and reverse the curse and destroy the serpent. And they remind us that God is not done with us yet. That he is faithful to keep his promises because as long as children continued and the godly line continued, then Genesis 3 could be fulfilled. And as we read through these genealogies, we have to imagine these lifetimes, these long lifetimes of people who had hope and expectation. And then we read, and they died. He wasn't it, his child wasn't it, and the curse would continue. And we're left asking, where's the child of promise? Where's the child who would defeat the snake and reverse the curse? And it's interesting how the Bible answers the question. See, when you read through, if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, you'll know that there are lots of genealogies in the Bible. Genesis has a lot of them. The book of Numbers has a ton of them. Chronicles and First and Second Kings gives a lot of these lists and lines of things. And, if, and when we close the pages of Malachi at the end of our Old Testament, we don't get an answer. Where's, this, where's the one who's going to crush the serpent? What's going to happen? We don't get the answer. And I hate not getting a resolution to a plot like that. I just, it, I can't do it. Thousands of years of hope and expectation, no resolution. And then you open up to the very first pages of your New Testament to the very first verse of the first chapter of your New Testament. And what does Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The gospel of Jesus, the hope of Jesus begins with a genealogy. And you can look back at, at, at Matthew chapter 1. It doesn't go all the way back to Adam, but it does sort of do a shorthand way of going from Abraham through to, and getting to Jesus' day. Luke chapter 3 actually gives us a very detailed genealogy that, that, that gets us there in a little bit longer fashion. And both genealogies are there to tell us and confirm for us that Jesus is the one who can kill and destroy the snake, reverse the curse, and that he is the savior of the world. And these genealogies are a powerful thing because they're here to confirm for us without a doubt who Jesus is and what he came on earth to do and what he's going to do when he comes again. Because see... All of us, everybody, the whole world is represented by one of two people. The Bible tells us you're either represented by Adam or you're represented by Jesus. If you want to think about this sort of representation thing, think about either Adam or Jesus is the quarterback for humanity. And that when, when one player, when the quarterback is penalized, the whole team can suffer. And so with Adam's sin, all of creation in him was impacted and brought the curse of death into the world. But Jesus, we're told, is the second Adam. 
A representative who isn't defined by his sin, who isn't defined by it because he doesn't have any sin. And rather, those who trust in Jesus are not defined by their sin, but by his righteousness. Romans 5.19 puts it this way. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's sin, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Adam as Genesis 4 to 5 shows, brought corruption to human nature, death into all of God's creation, and left humanity hopeless apart from the Lord's intervention. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, purifies the human heart, brings life and recreation into the world, and brings us hope. And he is God's intervention for the problem of sin. And how did he do it? What did Jesus do? will like all these names on this list, and just like you will one day, he died. What did Jesus do? He came to the earth, and he died, and he didn't just die any death, but he died a brutal death on the cross at the hands of sinful men, and on the cross he paid the penalty due our sin. He was cursed on our behalf, but unlike all of these other men, he didn't stay dead. (laughs) He rose again from the grave on the third day and like Enoch was later taken into heaven and he is today the king of kings and lord of lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and through faith in his death on the cross and his empty tomb, he will forgive your sin, make you righteous and promise you that friends, the grave isn't it for you. He gives you the promise that death isn't the end of your story. Not only does he promise that he has a home for souls with God when we die, but he promises that one day your grave will be empty. In fact, consider the fact that the Bible tells us that one day every graveyard is going to be empty. Consider this, the words of Jesus, John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And he goes on to say, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, the grave ain't your final home. It isn't the final home for all of these men and women who died in Genesis 5, and it won't be for you. But the question that should come out of this is, where will your final home be? And are you looking and longing for it? Some, it says, will rise to the resurrection of life on a renewed heavens and a new earth and be with God forever. Others will rise, it says, to a resurrection of death under judgment and be separated from God forever. And some will go and look at John 5 and say, well, it says that if we do good, I'll be okay But friends, the Bible also tells us that none of us can do the good that's needed. None of us can can, can do this sort of good because God's standard of goodness is perfection and thought, word, and deed. Not just good works, but right works done with right motives for the right reasons. None of us have lived this perfectly. We're fallen in Adam, and this is why we need Jesus to represent us. We need his perfect life credited to us so that we can rise just as he rose. And friends, Genesis 5 carries us through nearly 2,000 years in order to tell you this. You need someone to rescue you from death. 
You need someone to give you eternal life because none of these folks had it on their own. You need someone to live for you, to die for you, and to rise again for you. And we need what the families in this text thought their child would bring. Consider the hope that they thought Noah would bring for them. They thought Noah would bring relief from their work and from the painful toil of their hands. And I'll tell you, Noah can't do that. You can't do that. More money can't do that. The right spouse can't do that. None of them can bring you this. But a man named Jesus could, and he can today through turning from our sin and placing our faith in him, we can find and be reminded, brothers and sisters, of this, that he invites us to come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Friends, it's not found in all these other things that promise it in this world. Because, friends, death's coming. And, and life is, 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 so, is so broken and fallen, and there's going to be times that, that, that you're going to need hope to lean on. And Jesus says, here I am. The one who believes in me, he not only will, will give life in the present, spiritual life, but eternal life in the life to come, and promise them resurrection life when he comes again. Friends, what does this genealogy have to do with you? Well, I think it handles all the big questions that you could possibly have and need answers to. And it points you to Jesus to find in him all your hope and all your trust. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father God, you've given us a heavy word this morning for many of us. You've given us a, a heavy, heavy things to think on, but these are good things. The book of Ecclesiastes says it's better to enter a house of mourning than to enter the house of feasting because all of us are heading toward a house of mourning one day. But the Bible offers us hope, offers us freedom from the fear of death, offers us eternal life with you. And we don't have to fear the grave because not only will we, will we be with you, the, out of this body is present with the Lord. But he also promises to empty the graves of their power and empty the grave and to have us come be with you. And I pray that someone within the sound of my voice, whether here or online now, is looking to you for hope and trust in this moment. Lord, you'd have them to stop looking toward other things that can never free them, but to look to you and hope and find in you to be an all-sufficient, all-receiving Savior to all who would look to you, they can find life and life everlasting. Help us all as this world has us looking so many different places for hope and relief that our hope of ultimate relief isn't in who may win an election or may not or isn't in, in, in any sort of any of these other things we see in our world, whether it's in, in social media or in activism or in more money or whatever it might be, but it's in you. And may we come to you and find rest for our souls. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.